Thanks for joining us for Mississippi Prospects, a podcast focused on economic and community development in our state. Hosted by Jeff Friend and brought to you by the Mississippi Economic Development Council. A top factor in the site selection process is the availability of sites for development. Navigating the development process can be challenging, really, in any state. That's actually probably the understatement of the day. Joining us now is Keith Turner, who leads the Environmental Practice Group at Watkins Eager PLLC, a Mississippi-based law firm with offices in Jackson, Hattiesburg, and Birmingham, Alabama. Keith has represented clients before the Mississippi Department of Environmental Quality, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Prior to practicing law, Keith was an environmental consultant with more than 10 years of experience working with clients on water, air, hazardous waste, and groundwater remediation matters. His past legal matters involve air, water, and waste permitting, compliance and enforcement issues for 3.1 million ton steel mill, international auto manufacturing plant, and numerous corrective action sites. He's a graduate of Boston University and Mississippi College Law School, and he's listed in the best lawyers in America in environmental law. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. As I said in the beginning, that was probably the understatement of the day that navigating this process uh, is challenging. People are considering a site. How overwhelming can the process be, and how do you work with these clients to make it sort of as uh, smooth as possible? Well, over the past decades, it's gotten even more complicated. And I think the fact that they recognize it at the beginning is one of the important things to do. Uh, if you don't take a close look at these issues in the very beginning of the process, you'll get yourself caught later on, and then you're unable to bring the industry in or unable to get the permits because you've, you've got yourself in a corner. So it, it, it is key, particularly on things like wetlands and things, the things that require a longer time frame and, and a little bit more effort early on in the process. What are some of the key environmental permits and you know where do they fit into that timeline? Well, what we recommend, and before we actually get into permits, phase one environmental assessments is the first thing you need to do as part of your due diligence. And that's something that's important to conduct before you acquire property. Obviously, if you already got property in, in your in your pocket, that's a different situation. But but phase ones are important. And, and, and we could have a whole long discussion just about consultant selection in itself, because it's important who you choose for that work. And then it's very important on, on the work that they produce, those report. The language of that report is very critical on a lot of things, because it can implicate other problems later. So that's the first thing, is make sure you're, you do diligence is done properly under the phase one. Uh, other issues that have to be addressed include section 404 permits, that's wetlands uh, permits, uh, endangered species act or threatened endangered species, that's another challenge. The uh, Historic Preservation Act is, a, again, another challenge, depending on, on, on the, the scope of your property. Uh, there's what we call NPDES permitting, which is wastewater permitting, and then air permitting. And, and the timing of all of that and all of those are important. Things like an air permit, you have to have the permit in your hand before you can even start foundation work on your, your structures. Where wastewater, you can wait a little bit. You can actually technically not need a permit until you're actually about to discharge. So, and all of those take different times, depending on the size and scope of what the project is. But for, for folks that are looking to start with a greenfield, step one is dealing with the wetlands issues, historic preservation, and endangered species. How hard is it to manage expectations uh, with the client, perhaps, on going through the process and obtaining these different permits, and also the cost that can be involved in going through this process? Well, it's obviously a challenge, uh, particularly depending on the, the, the level of, of experience that someone may have in dealing with these issues. Uh, you know, you, have, you may have somebody who's done a lot of developments but never encountered an endangered species situation, for example. Uh, you know, you're dealing with different federal agencies, so they all have their own protocols and procedures. Uh, it, it can be challenging if you've never tackled 
all of them at the same time because that's really when you pile it all on it becomes quite quite complex but you got to move all the balls forward at one time you have to keep pushing them and as far as expectations clients always expect to have something done within a matter of a few weeks when it often and a lot of these can take you you know upwards of many months to a year is there a specific sequence that you can or should follow to tighten that timeline well we certainly try to have the uh endangered species and historic preservation and wetlands done first at the same time. I mean, you can bring a consultant to get all of those assessed and, and get that done first, and then you can kind of plan your strategy from there. How hard is it? Uh, I've worked with different federal programs, uh, federal grant programs for economic development, and a lot of them have different requirements. Uh, community development block grant may not match up with another grant that's also being used when they're multi-source funded. Uh, does that slow down the process when you have to meet different permitting and requirements for each one on the environmental side? All of this, the historic preservation, endangered species, and so forth, they all come out of the work, what's called the National Environmental Policy Act. So that's where the, the requirement arises from. But as you say, the different agencies all comply differently for NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act. And so, yes, it can be complex. One agency may have one set of rules that doesn't necessarily match the other one. If you do the work right from the beginning and get your consultant to prepare the right material, you can easily convert and massage that information to fit each agency. But you have to you know, think of that at the beginning. You don't want to have to do something and say, oh, well, now i got to do something for CDBG stuff and have to go back and redo it. So if you, you, know, if you, you begin at the st- of this process and you're strategizing that you're going to be looking at different types of grants or other uh, different requirements, that's the time to work with your consultant to develop that information so it can be used in different formats. With considering, when you consider using a consultant, what things do you take uh, into account when you're going to choose one, or what should you look for? Well, as I said in the beginning, there's a, there's a lot of factors that we, we could talk about. Uh, the most important is one that can demonstrate or has demonstrated that they can be an advocate for the client. A lot of these consultants have a habit of, of, of well, you know, this is the way the policy of the agency's been, so that's what I do. Policy is a whole lot different than the law, and so you have to be a strong advocate. So we look for folks that have been able to step outside the box or be able to push things beyond just what the law says. If the law has flexibility, let's demonstrate that we can use it. Uh, the other thing is obviously experience. I mean, you know, there's a lot of young folks in this business, and you want to make sure that the people that are doing the work are experienced. I'll give you a quick example. I mean, we've had some due diligence where we've had folks uh, identify sheens on the water, and uh-oh, we better investigate it. Well, if you've ever been in the woods in the right time of year, you're going to see a lot of sheen on little puddles because leaves naturally degrade and create sheens. It's not necessarily a petroleum spill. So, I mean, you want someone that's had the, the experience to knows what they're looking at on things like that. Wetlands delineation and concurrence from the United States Army Corps of Engineer, jurisdictional versus non-jurisdictional. Explain that a little. Yeah, that's a very timely issue. Uh, the, the jurisdictional basically means that the core and EPA and the and the feds have have some authority over what you're going to do on that property if it's jurisdictional. The, the terminology arises out of of waters of the U.S., which is uh, currently in the courts. It's currently in the the uh, presidential administration for changes. There's a lot of a lot of upheaval on exactly what that means. But when folks what they need to realize and, and is is when we say waters of the U.S., it doesn't mean there has to be water there. It can be a piece of property that you can walk on 10 months out of the year that still may be jurisdictional because there's an adjacency requirement. If something's adjacent to a waters of the U.S., it, it could be jurisdictional. So, you know, non-jurisdictional is what you want, obviously. Then you don't have any obligations. You don't require permitting. But to be able to get to that decision is, is can be a real challenge. And we find a lot of the consultants currently 
again, fall back into that mode of, well, we'll default to finding jurisdictional because that's easier, when in a lot of situations it's not. I mean, they're, they're, just because you see water wetland or something that may look like a wetland doesn't necessarily mean that it's jurisdictional wetland. There is a di- big difference between the two. And it's important to realize that you don't necessarily have to have the core permits if you're a non-jurisdictional. You can still do the work you need to do without going through the core process. What's the deciding factor between jurisdictional and non-jurisdictional? Well, that's the part that's so difficult. <laughs> the, you know, there, there's a lot of different – we have many different U.S. Supreme Court opinions on that. We have judicial – I mean, district court and, and appeal courts. Uh, and then we have the agencies, and there's not consistency throughout this. There was a rule – and not to get into the weeds, but there was a rule in, that was – passed by the last administration in 2015, that rule is being repealed with the plan of bringing another rule in after that. So, you know, what exactly means? It's hard to tell. And and it's it's got, uh, you know, everything from are ditches jurisdictional or not? Because ditches become a question. Are, are in, uh, you know, ephemeral streams or intermittent streams jurisdictional or not? There's a lot of, lot of confusion on that point. A lot of different types of wetlands permits then? Well, uh, really, no. The Section 404 permit is the primary core permit. Um, depending on uh, whether you're uh, how you go about your project, that's really that's really all you're going to need. Now, of course, if you're on on coastlines like a Mississippi coast, you have to also get the 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 DMR Department of Marine Resources involved. They have a joint permitting process, and then the uh, state has an opportunity in the permitting process through what they call Section 401 Water Quality Certification. So you have the Corps weighs in, the EPA weighs in, the state weighs in. Looking at a piece of property for development, there are wetlands there. And I think often people's immediate reaction is we're not going to be able to. But there are mitigation steps that can be taken that can make this piece of property work. What are some of those steps? Yeah, mitigation is is the, the solution to a lot of these things. Just because you have wetlands doesn't mean you can't use the property, obviously. Mitigation, there's very many variables. You can do what they call uh, mitigation banking, which is you go and actually buy credits at a bank. A bank has been set up where someone bought wetlands properties, and then they sell credit based upon the, the factors on how much credit you need for your project. You can also do mitigation on the property if you have enough property. That's, that's a little bit more of a challenge, but they're still available where the permittee is allowed to do that. And then you can, you can also buy property elsewhere and, and mitigate through other, acquiring other properties and put it in perpetuity protection. Having the right consultant can help answer these questions on the front end and understand the Certainly, yeah. I mean, the way we view it, I mean, it's it's a team that you need. I mean, there's there's always a lot of legal issues that have to be interpreted. So, I mean, we we view it that we have to work closely for the client, both on the the legal side and the consulting side. And and that you need both factors in there to really move it forward to, to conclusion. Are there common threads that you see that are barriers to development to some of many properties around the state or that are common to Mississippi? Well, obviously, wetlands is, is one of the bigger ones, but there are certain also problems with, with water discharge or water usage. So that, that that's depending on where you are in the state. If you have a property that doesn't have any good access to water, whether it be through groundwater or surface water, that can be a challenge. If you have a, a site that doesn't have any surface water at all and you need to be able to discharge wastewater, you're thinking about a large industry that may need to discharge, that's going to be a challenge. But the first one goes back to the wetlands. It always goes back to the wetlands. If you have wetlands on your property, that becomes the biggest difficulty. And there's some there's some sites in the state that have a fair amount of streams and, and associated wetlands along those streams that becomes very difficult to find a way to plop something down. There's one other aspect as well is is you're not be, you're not really supposed to go get a permit until you have a project. Until you have a actually what are you going to build there? So if you're an economic developer and you have a thousand acres and you know you have wetlands, you can't get a permit in advance. That's kind of difficult. So we've, we're working on some ways around that. Pretending on your site, there are some solutions to that. But the general rule is you need to have the project before you can get the permit. 
That's interesting because I can see in some cases uh, up in the Tupelo area, they've done a lot of speculative buildings ahead of time and developed and they've been successful in recruiting companies to come locate there. In areas where they might meet some of these challenges, that would prohibit then building a well, you can do a building. If you're going to build, if, if you're a developer and say, well, I want to build this 20,000 square foot building on this parcel, that's accepted. That's a project. So that's okay. You okay. could get a permit. You don't have to have a company tied to it then. Right. No, but what you can't do is go, here's a thousand acres and I want to develop this property. I want to develop these 800 acres. I'm not sure what I'm going to put there. I don't know what form, shape, or whatever I'm going to use. You can't get a permit for that right now. But there are exceptions to that rule. And we've, there are pathways. Again, out, you know, a lot of these, these laws are written in such a way that there's, there's, there's ways to work within them that allows you to get a permit for that type of site. Uh, it, it's a special type of permit, and it, and it allows for unique flexibilities as you develop that property. But that's not the norm. How can you make the process go smoother uh, from beginning to end when working with the clients? Well, the important aspect here is, is to get everyone involved so we understand exactly where they want to go and we have a strategy and develop a path. Um, with that, we also need to be dealing with the agencies. In certain situations, you're going to want to have sit-downs with the agencies, federal and or state, in advance to kind of discuss what the, what the site issues may be, what permitting challenges there may be, have the advanced discussions, and be able to work through some, some solutions in advance of, of trying to just submit an application. Some of the people who need to have a seat at the table, uh, we're talking more about industrial development uh, around the state. I would think uh, Department of Environmental Quality, of course. Yes. Uh, who else needs to be there? Well, again, as I said, depending where you're located, if you're down on the coast, the DMR may be involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, you Obviously, if you're in a community where you're looking for the communities, whether it be county or municipalities, to providing some of the services, whether it be water or sewer, you want them involved. Uh, the Often, on, obviously, MDA can play a role in that as well to help facilitate uh, process through Corps of Engineers separately. EPA may be involved. You may even need the Fish and Wildlife involved, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife as well, because if you're dealing with endangered species, that's a separate and then that may bring in, uh, you know, our, our state parks group because they are some role in, in dealing with endangered species as well. Also historic preservation at times. Historic preservation, you have, you know, we have what they call a chapeau, the state historic preservation officer. And depending on what you have, again, on your property, you need to get them. Usually those kind of things you deal with separately. You deal with those, that agency separately. But, yes, they, they will need to be consulted as well. The permitting process timeline is, is critical and what is it, from your perspective, where does it begin, and what's involved in it? If you're pursuing wetlands permits and you have to deal with the other greenfield site development things, you're looking at, you know, for a larger site, you're looking at assuming at least several months. I mean, th- there's different issues that may come up on wetlands permits. You may be able to get what they call a nationwide permit. That may be a, a 90-day process. If you have to get an indi- individual permit and you have to deal with mitigation, you could be six, nine months through the process. Simultaneously, you need to be discussing things with DEQ as well. DEQ has lost a lot of seniority, senior folks and a lot of institutional knowledge through retirements, and so they're not quite at, at the speed they used to be. So you need to account for that. You need to be able to spend some time with those folks and give them ample opportunity to be able to go through the, the permitting process as well. But uh, you're looking at many, many months to do these things. It's not something you can turn around in 30, 60 days, regardless of what kind of permit you're trying to get. How does our permitting process in Mississippi differ, perhaps, compared to some of our competing states? We've been recognized many times uh, for our speed of permitting and also for the fact that we call it one-stop permitting, and that's going through Department of Environmental Quality. But 
looking at our neighboring states and our competing states, how does the process differ? Well, th- that one-stop concept has really been beneficial. I mean, basically what they do, if you have a, you know, a significant environmental project, uh, industrial development project, they assign someone to that, and that person is going to help you go through all the maze of, of the agency issues. And you don't see that necessarily in the other states. I mean, the other states, this is our procedure. Here's applications. You go deal with that group. You deal with that group and deal with that group. DEQ doesn't do it that way. They are sensitive to economic development, I think, better than a lot of other states as far as agencies go. And because of that, it will improve the process. But there's certain deadlines and requirements they can't work around. That just has to be, I mean, public comment periods, for example, have to be a fixed period of time. You can't change that. But, uh, yeah, it's definitely, as far as surrounding states go, Mississippi and the DEQ do a great job at being able to facilitate getting permits. And having that single point of contact, you know, I know I can always go to this person to explain the issues, to help find the answers, you know, to the challenges we may be facing or what's coming next in the process. That's really sort of a best practice, not just for environmental permitting, but probably a lot of areas in economic development. Certainly, certainly. I mean, it, it, particularly when you're dealing with a maze of, of the laws and, and requirements and issues that, that come up. Because you've got the state and federal requirements, which will obviously differ. Do they come in conflict at all, or are they complementary? Well, generally they don't conflict with each other, but they don't necessarily all mesh real well. They don't play well together sometimes as well. So, uh, and and since you are dealing with separate agencies, there is separate decision processes. Uh, for wetlands, for example, the the core won't issue a 404 permit until the state has issued its 401 water quality certification. So you have to. There is some coordination between the two. Um, but sometimes you have to help facilitate that. Navigating the murky waters of greenfield development. Keith Turner, thank you for joining us today on Mississippi Prospects. Thank you. Mississippi Prospects is brought to you by the Mississippi Economic Development Council, the Mississippi Development Authority, Cooperative Energy, Greater Jackson Alliance, Entergy, Mississippi Power, Tennessee Valley Authority, Watkins and Eager, Butler Snow, Jones Walker, and produced by Pottery Studios. If you have questions or comments, join us on Twitter at MEDC Info.